Good to have you with us. You'll find printed there in your bulletin our sermon text for the morning, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, last week we looked at the immediately preceding text, Matthew chapter 21, the parable of the tenants. And so this morning I'd love to look with you for a few moments at Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, the parable of the wedding feast. So let me read that passage for you, give it your attention, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning through His Word. Hear God's word for you. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, Well, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We need the Spirit if we're going to understand this rightly. So let's ask him for his help. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father, as we gather again this morning before your word, we ask that you would work as you have promised to do and as you have done in our lives through spirit and word, equipping us to engage our own hearts and the community around us with the gospel, granting to us a greater love for Jesus and a renewed obedience in him, uh, up to him by faith in him. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. So I wonder what is the most embarrassing thing that you have ever seen happen at a wedding? What's the most embarrassing thing you've ever seen happen at a wedding? I'm a pastor, and so I do weddings from time to time, and my dad was a pastor, and he did a lot of weddings. And trust me, as a pastor, you see from time to time some awkward, embarrassing things in weddings. My dad has a great story about his most embarrassing wedding moment. Thankfully, it wasn't at his own wedding. He was officiating at a wedding, and everything had gone smooth thus far. Uh, But when the time for the exchange of rings came, the groom and the bride were facing one another, standing before my father, and my dad asked the groom the vows, and the groom began to place the ring on his bride's finger. But the groom, as many grooms are, was exceedingly nervous, and his hands were shaking, so much so that, you know, the people in the crowd could tell that day. And the ring slipped and fell directly below into an air vent, 
that just happened, unfortunately, to be right beneath where these two people were seated and dropped about a foot underneath the ground in the air vent. And at that point, my dad, who did not receive training on this in seminary, uh, and the bride and the groom looked down and then looked at each other, and there was sort of an awkward moment of silence. What are we going to do here? They continued to proceed along and afterwards unscrewed the air vent and retrieved the ring. Yet my dad remembers that story 20 years later, and we all laugh at that story, and we probably have other stories about experiences we've had or seen at weddings that are embarrassing or awkward. And I think one of the reasons we remember these sorts of stories from weddings in particular is because as a cultural event, weddings have a lot of power, right, and a lot of significance. They're things that we're going to remember for perhaps even the rest of our lives. Hopefully we'll remember our own wedding, but oftentimes we even remember things that happen at, at weddings that either we're officiating as pastors or at weddings that we attend. They're, they're an important part of our culture. You know, there's a huge industry built up around the wedding day itself. And sometimes, again, as a pastor, I think that there's more preparation that goes into the actual wedding than there is that goes into the actual marriage for people that are planning on getting married. And Jesus, you know, recognized this. This was true then as it is now, that weddings are a very, very important uh, cultural landmark, so to speak. They're things that um, indelibly imprint themselves onto people's heads, into people's minds. And so Jesus, as the master storyteller, is giving here a parable that people are going to remember. It's a parable about a wedding. And he's appealing to our imagination here and, and using images and stories that hopefully will, will captivate you as this story has captivated people for thousands of years. Because weddings then as now were a subject of fascina- fascination on, among the people who were listening to him. So this parable then, uh, the parable of the wedding feast, compares the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God to a great wedding banquet for the crown prince. And it's very powerful and it grabs our attention quickly. And I hope you notice there at the very beginning that Jesus opens his parable by saying that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And that's a good reminder for us that all of these parables ultimately are intended to teach you and to teach me about the kingdom of heaven. And this is the third parable in Matthew 21 and 22. We looked at the second one last week uh, that speaks very clearly in particular against the Jews, the, the religious leaders who rejected the person and work of Jesus as Messiah and as Savior. And this parable uh, is told by Jesus during Passion Week, during the last week of his life on Tuesday. Jesus has had the triumphal entry, and he's cleansed the temple. And as many gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal, Jesus' teaching continues here to, to stir up tremendous angst and animosity against him. So that in just three days, he's going to be unjustly sentenced to die and torturously crucified on a tree. But what I want you to get as far as context is that Again, this parable is directed towards, towards the religious right of Jesus' day, towards the upstanding pillars of the community, towards the good folks, towards those people that were in temple or in church week in and week out, towards the people who had built a stellar reputation. Just as the parable of the tenants, so the parable of the wedding feast is directed just at these folks. And again, I suspect that if you're like me, which I think some of you, many of you are, this parable is directed then at us. It's a, it's a mirror a mirror on our hearts. And here's the main idea. 
that I want you to get this morning, okay? God freely invites us to the wedding banquet of his son, but we must be properly attired, okay? So don't miss that. If you're going to check out from now on, I could live with that, but don't miss that. God freely invites us to the wedding banquet of his son, but you must be properly attired. Three things for you as we explore this parable today, okay? The guests who refused is the first thing we'll look at. The guests who refused, the guests who accepted, and the guest without a garment. So three quick points, they're there in your bulletin. Okay, so let's dive in first. I want to show you what Jesus speaks about in the first part of this amazing story, the guests who refused. And so looking at the story, we can see that the initial guests who had been invited by this king in the realm to attend the wedding feast of his son refused to come. And again, it should be somewhat apparent by this point that this first group of guests is clearly a reference to the nation of Israel and particularly to those sorts of people I was just speaking about, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, that is, um, the religious leaders. And the guests then parallel the tenants who killed the servants and the son of the landowner in our sermon last week. So these initial guests refused to come to the wedding. And the refusal of these guests, I hope you get, is really a remarkable thing. And it's, it's remarkable not just because it was, you know, a major social faux pas, a major social no-no to not go to a wedding at the last minute, you know, to not show up and come up with some excuse. Although that's a, that's a reason in itself why this is a remarkable thing that they refuse him. But it's even more remarkable because this isn't just any wedding. You know, this is the wedding of the crown prince. This is the wedding of of the king's own son. For one, who would not want to go to that wedding? You know, I mean, that's going to be an awesome party. They're going to have great food. It's going to be magnificent and opulent. And there's going to be amazing beauty. It's going to be a spectacle that you wouldn't want to miss. But furthermore... To miss this wedding, to refuse to accept the invitation, isn't just committing a social faux pas. It's potentially treasonous activity. Because this is, you know, this is the wedding of the king. And when the king sends an invitation to his servants, it's not really one you can turn down. It's a, it's an implicit command rather than a pleading request. Come, please, please, please come. No, kings don't do that. They say, the wedding is this date at this time, I expect you to be there. So imagine, just let's put this in our own context. Um, Imagine that the governor of Arizona is a native Tucsonan, and he's very well-connected in our community, and his daughter is getting married. And you are invited to the wedding and to the reception, along with all of the important people in Tucson and the surrounding communities, and the menu looks amazing, it's going to be Amazing! It's going to be a great wedding. It's it's looking like sort of the event of the year socially in Tucson. Now, imagine that I told you that not a single person, zero people, showed up at the wedding. Now, of course, you you would be aghast, right? That's just rude. People don't do that. It makes no sense. And then further, imagine that I tell you that the governor has some staff members who are, who are on the payroll and they deliver handwritten messages to these people, to you and to I and to others to attend, and that these staff members are beaten and some of them are even killed. Now, that just doesn't happen. And then imagine that the governor calls up the National Guard and comes in and burns Tucson to the ground in response to their rejection. 
Listen, Christ is, he's telling us a colossal story here, you see. And the purpose is to show us, listen, the purpose is to show us how foolish and ridiculous it is for the people of God to reject God's own son, Jesus. That's, that's the whole point. And real quickly, I want, I want you to see two ways in which these initial guests refuse the king's invitation. First, we see that some of them are just indifferent. If you'll look there at verse 4 and verse 5, the king says, I've prepared a huge feast. It's going to be delightful. Come to the wedding feast, verse 5. But they paid no attention. And then they come up with all these lame excuses. Jesus tells us here simply that they paid no attention. But in Luke's gospel, he gives a little more detail. Luke says, Jesus says this, I have bought a field, some people say, and I must go out and see it. I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go to examine them. I've married a wife, and therefore I can't come. What lousy excuses. You know, they're just trying to thinly veil their indifference to the king's son's wedding. As if you would buy a field without going to look at it first. Or as if your new wife wouldn't be also welcome to join you at the feast. These excuses are, they're really poor covers for the simple fact that these common people just aren't at all interested or concerned with the invitation of their sovereign, of their king, to his own son's wedding. So some of them refuse because they're indifferent. And then others, verse 6, verse 7, refuse because they're not just indifferent, they're act- actively hostile, right? They, we read there, actually kill the king's servants and they treat them shamefully. And the king justly responds to this, by the way, with anger and burns down their town and destroys them. And this response to the invitation, of course, it doesn't make any sense either. Why would you kill these servants? I mean, why shoot the messenger, right? All they're doing is delivering you a wedding invitation. Why are you so angry? Why so hostile? You see Jesus' point. It's very forceful. Why would you reject the son? He's inviting you to a wedding feast. It's going to be wonderful, and it's free of charge. Why are you not just being indifferent, but furthermore being hostile? And I want us to just think for a moment again, remind ourselves again that Jesus is speaking not only to ancient Jews here, You hear me? He's not only speaking to ancient Jews here, but to all, to everyone who treats God with indifference or with hostility. And and really, Jesus is saying this. Whether you are outwardly hostile to God or simply indifferent to God, you are against Him. Uh, Or to put it another way, indifference is not a neutral response to God the King. Indifference is akin to open hostility. So so to apply that point, just for a moment, uh, if you're the kind of person who simply thinks that God and Jesus and the Bible are irrelevant to your daily life, or, or that you don't have time to worry about spiritual things right now, you're too busy or that you will deal with those questions when you get more settled in. You're rejecting God. Uh, When your work concerns you more, or your family concerns you more, or your pursuits and dreams and hobbies and pleasures concern you more, you are not innocent. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. You're not merely a procrastinator about spiritual things. You're a rebel. Now, you might say, I'm, I'm not an atheist. Come on, Pastor Luke. I, I believe in God. 
I think those things are important, but it's just not something that is at the top of my list right now. It's not in the center of my radar right now. I've got a lot going on. Well, listen, Jesus is saying that your indifference towards God might not be exactly like open hostility to God, but it is rebellion against God, all the same. And you are guilty before him for treating him in this way. Now, not many of you, I suspect, are hostile to God in the way that some of these people in the parable are. But perhaps some of us, all the time, or at least from time to time, are simply those who pay him no attention and go off. Listen, he has invited you, he's invited me to the wedding feast of the Son. So are you excited to attend the feast? Do you look forward to dining with the king? Or is the invitation sort of at the bottom of an unopened stack of mail on your counter. So there's guests who refuse. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, the king's response was, the wedding feast is prepared, but those invited were not worthy. So we see then, secondly, that the king sends out more invitations, and these new guests accept his offer. So secondly, the guests... Who accepted, particularly you see that there in verses 8, 9, and 10. A couple of things I want to point out about the guests who accepted. First, let's just ask ourselves this question of the passage. Have you ever wondered this? Why is it so important for the king to have the wedding guests filled, the wedding feast filled with guests? You know, you ever wonder that? Why is the king so intent on having people at the wedding? Now, I think the answer is actually quite natural and simple. The king is intent on having people at the wedding because the king is determined to honor his son. Think of it. None of us, you know, I've got two and a half kids, two and three quarters kids at this point. You know, one of them is two weeks away from being due. I'm not saying he's not fully human. You know what I'm saying there. Uh, One's on the way, okay? Uh, And I think, you know, for my kid's wedding... It would be an embarrassment to my child. It would be a shameful thing for my child. It would be a horrible thing for my child if they showed up at the wedding, particularly if my daughter walked down the wedding aisle in whatever church she gets married in, and it's completely empty. There's no one else in there. It's it's an embarrassment. It doesn't honor her. It's, It's something that is shameful for our family. It doesn't make her feel good on her wedding day. No good and caring parent would stand for every invitation to the wedding to be rejected. And for the wedding feast to take place in an empty ballroom, no way, right? You grasp what Jesus is saying? God is determined. God is determined to honor his son. There's no way he's going to allow this banquet hall to not be full, to not be standing room only. And so he sends out servants and invites, verse 10, as many as you find on the main roads, on the highways and byways, so that the hall is filled with guests. Now, this is a very kind and gracious act of the king towards the guests, as we will see. But his primary aim, it seems, is to honor his son. Now, what can you and I take from that? Listen, God invites us to Jesus' wedding feast, which is the metaphor for coming into the kingdom of heaven. God invites us to the wedding, but he does it for the sake of the name of Jesus. Our entrance into the kingdom is for the glory of the king. 
our invitation to the wedding feast is in order to honor the bridegroom of the wedding. Listen, God, God will never suffer his son to be dishonored. Okay? And that's why Jesus can say in John, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen, God is determined to save because God is determined to make the Savior look great. And that's why the wedding hall has to be full. That's why the feast has to be a massive party because it makes Jesus, the reason for the feast in the first place, look glorious. Second, I want you to notice with regard to these guests who accepted that the king, he invites anyone and everyone into the feast and that the hall is filled with guests. Verse 10, there were guests both good and bad, Jesus says. And notice the places that the servants of the king go, the roads, verse 9, and the highways and the city squares. What does that mean? That means that these aren't the guests that rejected. They're not the upstanding citizens. They're not the important people of the community. These are undoubtedly the poor and the disheveled and the unlikeliest of all people to be found at that sort of party. You know, you just imagine that. This is why Jesus is such a powerful storyteller. Uh, imagine the story playing out in your own mind. Imagine the, the servants approaching the poor blind beggar and handing this guy an invitation with the royal seal and then helping him stagger into the banquet hall. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, the servants approaching a prostitute plying her trade on the street corners and taking her away from her pimp into the Meeting hall of the prince. Can you imagine the, the servants taking the poorest and the lowliest, the people that are scrounging in the gutters for that day's food, and setting before those people a table filled with more wine and meat and dessert than they had ever seen in one place? Can you imagine that? That's what Jesus wants you to envision because that exact is exactly, this is the key, that, that is exactly what God the King in his marvelous grace is like. You know that? That's who God is. He takes people like you and like me, broken, weakened, distraught, messy, sinful, addicted, compulsive, helpless, poor, and he brings us to a place that we never deserve to be and in which we never expected to be. You see, these, these poor in the parable, these people on the highways and in the street corners didn't do anything to merit this invitation from the king, right? There's not a hint of that in the story. The king is, he's simply being gracious to them. He's taking them to his own royal table to celebrate with him like they had been longtime friends. You know, there's no one that God does not invite to the celebration. That's Jesus' point. And that makes sense when we grasp that there is no one who deserves to be invited based on his or her own inherent qualities. No, anyone and everyone is welcome. Anyone and everyone is invited because the King is gracious to anyone and everyone. Isn't that good news? 
The king opens wide his doors for you and for I to enter into his kingdom, to eat at his table, to celebrate with his son, and to never leave. That, friends, is that's what the grace of the gospel is like. And the banquet's going to be full. God's bringing in countless guests. There's going to be children and old people. There's going to be women and men. There's going to be Ethiopians and Sudanese and Chinese and Russian and Slavic and American and Mexican and Portuguese and Australian and Iraqi and Iranian. And they're all going to be at one table in perfect peace and harmony and beautiful unity and diversity, eating and singing and dancing and clapping. For the wedding day of Jesus, the great prince of the nations. That is what God offers us, and he offers it to us freely. That's his open invitation, and it's going out to you right now. That's gospel. It's good news. It's a glorious wedding feast that you don't have to do anything to earn an invitation to. It's a feast that never ends, that you don't deserve to enter into, but you get to go into nevertheless because the king is simply and profoundly gracious. You get that. Have you accepted that? Has that changed you? It changed these guests who accepted the king's free and gracious offer. That is, it changed all of them except one. You know, it'd be, it'd be great to end the parable right here. In fact, Jesus uh, could have ended it right here, and it still would have been an amazing parable, but there's sort of a strange third point. Uh, last couple of verses that you wouldn't really expect in the parable... Uh, but very, very important point that he's making there, beginning in verse 11. There's a third act to the story, so to speak. We read there in verse 11 that the king enters the hall to look at the guests, and he promptly sees a man, Jesus says, who had no wedding garment. And we read there in verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12, that the king asks this man, how did you get in here without a garment? And the man can't think of anything to say. He's speechless. So verse 13, the king reacts by having his servants bind this man hand and foot and throw him out of the banquet hall into the dark night. So that's a strange strange way to end things, Jesus. You know, we were doing really well there when all the poor people came into the wedding feast. Why'd you have to go there? But he does. He goes there. He makes that Final point, what's, what's the main idea here? What's going on? Well, think about the situation with me, okay? Hang with me. The text, uh, the text doesn't even hint. Uh, uh, by the way, a lot of scholars are kind of, when they interpret Matthew 22, when you read a commentary or something, there's various views on exactly what's happening here. Some people say, well, clearly everyone went home and changed into their nicest clothes and then went back and this guy forgot to do that. But that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. There's no, there's no hint of that in the text, not even of the possibility that all of the other guests went home and changed and that this one man simply neglected to do so or forgot to do so. And furthermore, as we've seen, these people are all undoubtedly very poor and wretched and undoubtedly they don't even own a single garment that's going to be fit for the wedding feast of the prince. So it seems to me that there's really only one good answer to what's happening here. And here it is. The king has provided wedding garments for his new guests from his own household. And there's some evidence, by the way, in ancient marriage ceremonies that this sort of thing was done but the thought really the thought really flows from interpreting this text in light of other parts of the bible 
And the most important of those other texts is a part of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7. Listen to what it says. Then one of the elders addressed me. That's John who's seeing this vision. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these, these saints in heaven, clothed in white robes? And where have they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Listen, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, so let's tie it together. You see what Jesus is getting at here with this last point then? It's the heart of the story in a way. The only way that we can enter the wedding supper of the king is to be dressed in the right clothes. And we don't have anything nice enough to make us acceptable. We don't have the righteousness or the purity or the holiness to stand before God the King and say that we should eat at His table. We're dirty and spotted and our garments are stained. But but Jesus, you see, Jesus provides His own robe. His own clothing, his own blood-stained and perfectly pure raiment for us to wear. That's, that's what happened in the death of Jesus. He, he died for our sins and substituted his righteous deeds and righteous life for us before God. He took our place and we took his place. And listen, without this righteousness of Jesus Christ freely given to us, the theological word is imputed to us, we cannot be a part of the feast. Without being covered in the purity of the sun, we will be cast into the outer darkness just like this wedding guest without a wedding garment was. When I was a little boy growing up in... um, a town in West Texas called Amarillo. Probably some of you have driven through it on I-40. That's what I always hear people say. I've driven through. Well, okay, thank you. It's a great place. You should stop and hang out for a while. But there's a famous steakhouse on I-40 in Amarillo called the Big Texan. And probably some of you, the signs, by the way, start like 300 miles away from Amarillo. You're seeing signs for the Big Texan. Anyway, I used to go there as a child, and they have one of those wooden boards that has a cowboy with a big cowboy hat standing up with his six-shooter and his badge, etc., and a hole where his head is. And little kids come behind it and put their heads through so that they look like a cowboy and mom and dad snap a photo, etc. There's, you've seen these things, right? They're all over the place. But this particular one, because it's in West Texas, a very godly and righteous place, by the way, it's in, it's in West Texas. It's, it's a cowboy. So, I would go back and stand behind the cardboard cowboy at the Big Texan to get a picture. Or, you know, behind the cardboard muscle man at the beach and get a picture. So in a very similar way, in order to really be a part of the kingdom, in order to ever go into the feast, we have to, we have to stand behind Jesus. And, and if we can't, and won't and refuse to, to stand behind Jesus or rather have Jesus stand for us in God's sight when he snaps the photo of our lives on the day of judgment, then there's no way we can be entered into the kingdom. There's no way we will be admitted into the feast. Listen, that that is the gospel. And that's the message of the parable. Jesus freely offers himself and his clothing in our place when our clothing won't do because it's sin-stained. 
And the man in the parable who was without a garment did not understand that he could not stand before the king in his own clothes. You know, he thought he could. He must have refused the garment freely offered him upon entering the banquet hall. And that is the height of arrogance, you see. Thinking he had the standing to measure up at such a place and in the presence of such a person. And the result of his arrogance, the result of his refusal to take on Jesus, to stand behind Jesus was, verse 13, to be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And friends, I must tell you as a minister of the gospel that that is the result of your arrogance. If you think you can stand before God in your own power and based on your own merit or standing, trying to enter the kingdom because of who you are or what you do always ends in darkness, in weeping, in pain. So, so take on the robe that Jesus provides. Come into the feast of the Father clothed, clothed in, in His precious garments, which He provides for you freely in His death and in His resurrection. It's, it's something you don't have to pay for. You simply have to accept. Isn't that powerful? That is good news. Jesus offers you His righteousness, His justification, His standing, and you take it by faith, trusting in Him, and enter into the kingdom made ready for you by God. The religious folks who first heard this parable on Tuesday of Passion Week 2,000 years ago did not get that point. Are you going to get it? Or are you going to be like the man who entered the feast thinking, I look good enough on my own. That will never work. It will always result in failure. It will always end in being cast away. Don't do it. It's free of charge to take the robe. Take the robe. The religious refused. Jesus is calling you and I to accept. I'm always reminded when I read and preach on this parable of Count Zinzendorf's famous hymn, uh, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. He wrote it in 1739. And I'm just going to read you two of my favorite stanzas to conclude because I think it beautifully captures and summarizes the point of this parable. So listen, here's what the hymn says. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Jesus, be endless praise to Thee, whose boundless mercy has for me, for me, a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that through the merit of Jesus, who shed His blood on the cross and was raised again from the dead so that the sinners, the people lying in the street corners and in the gutters, the people on the highways and byways can freely enter into the kingdom, into that great wedding feast for you, Jesus. We thank you that through that work you have offered, these people can come in freely. And, oh God, we ask that you would help us to recognize that that is where we are apart from you. That apart from you, we are not upstanding, we are not able, we are not righteous, we are not pure, but rather we are people who have desperate need. And 
Father, we thank you that again and again, Jesus in his teaching points that out to us. He pricks our hearts and he shatters our pride and he calls us to humbly rest and trust himself. And so, oh God, we grant, ask that you would grant us the ability to do that even today, even this week, to not rest in our own righteousness, but rather uh, like those servants or like those guests who accepted the free invitation to the wedding feast and accepted the free offer of new clothing to be like them, oh God. Oh God, will you help us to remember and to believe and to understand more and more fully how life-changing that truth is. And now as we come to, to the table and begin to participate, to get, a, to get a taste of what the wedding feast will truly be like, will you fill us with joy at the truth of the gospel that we see here in this part of your word? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.